Let's open our Bibles together to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Let's read the whole chapter. And the text of the sermon will be verses 22 through 33. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, For the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat, and were filled And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men, beside women and children. Now begins the text for the sermon. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship, and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there, alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. 
But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him, that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. We read God's word that far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the midst of the dark and boisterous storms of this life, are we walking on the sea with our eyes fixed on Jesus? In our many storms and trials of this life, and even of this present time, have we come to realize how weak we are in ourselves, in the face of contrary winds. How powerless we are to row through those winds. And how desperately we are in need of Christ to save us. Those are questions of self-examination. Those are questions that the sermon intends to put before you and me this afternoon for us to consider, for us to ask of ourselves, to prepare ourselves to come to the supper of our Lord next Sunday, Lord willing. The evening before the event of our text took place, Our Lord Jesus served what is probably the most famous supper of all. Prior to that, the Lord Jesus and his disciples had boarded their little ship in Capernaum and sailed across the Sea of Galilee to the northeastern shore near the city of Bethsaida. And they had retreated into a desert place alone to rest after they heard the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. But the news got around that Jesus and his disciples were going into this place, and people started to run out of the cities and towns of Galilee on foot along the northern shore of the sea in order to be able to meet Jesus there in the hopes of hearing his teaching and receiving his miracles. 
And Jesus was not at all perturbed when he saw the multitude coming, but he taught them, he healed them, and he was with them all that day. When the evening came, Jesus' disciples advised him to send the multitude away into the towns and cities to find something to eat for supper. But Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And they said, all that we have are these five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus commanded them to seat the multitude in the grass in that place. And he took those five loaves and two fishes. He broke the bread. He gave thanks. He gave it to the disciples. And they passed it out and fed the whole multitude. After that, they gathered up baskets of leftovers. And the number of that multitude was about 5,000 men plus women and children. After he fed the 5,000 plus the women and children, Jesus led his disciples back down to the seashore, to the ship, and he said, Now you go back by yourselves, back to the other side, and I am going to dismiss the multitude. So the disciples got in their ship and they began to sail. Jesus went back and dismissed the multitude. The reason Jesus did that, we are told in John 6, verse 15, a parallel account. It's because Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. The people were so amazed at the miracle of the feeding that they thought Jesus would be the perfect king for them here on this earth. He could give them all of their earthly desires and needs. But Jesus had not come to be that kind of a king. So he sent the multitudes away, and he went up into a mountain by himself to pray as the night was wearing on. But the disciples were in their boat, obeying Jesus and going back to the other side. And in their voyage, a great wind began to blow and the disciples were in trouble. Let's consider together this afternoon the mighty works of Christ walking to his disciples on the sea. First of all, his wondrous coming on the sea. Secondly, keeping our eyes of faith fixed on him. And then finally, worshiping him in grateful awe. As Jesus was up in that mountain praying, in the night for several hours, the disciples were toiling to row their ship through an increasingly boisterous sea. When the disciples departed from the shore in their boat, all seemed well. Clear skies, gentle waters, they were experienced sailors, and they thought in no time, maybe in a few hours, we will get across the sea to the other side back home. But as the sun began to set in the western sky and darkness settled over them, a great wind suddenly began to blow on the Sea of Galilee. That wind, we are told, was a contrary wind, which means it was blowing in their face as they were trying to row across the sea. It was a great, powerful wind that was churning up the waters so that the waves were splashing against them. It was as if nature itself was trying to push them back to Bethsaida and not allow them to sail across toward Capernaum. 
They were being thwarted and frustrated in all their attempts to move forward, tossed to and fro in the violent waters of the sea. We are like those disciples on a journey through the sea of this world in the darkness of this present night. We are now in the nighttime. The day of eternity has not yet dawned. And in this night, we, the church, are sailing across that sea. And as we sail across the sea, we are assaulted by great winds. And that great wind points to the whole host of spiritual forces that are arrayed against us in the darkness of this present world. The devil and all of his demons and the wicked world are constantly blowing contrary winds against us, seeking to thwart us, to frustrate us from trying to sail across the sea of this life. They send a constant barrage of temptations and accusations against us. They tempt us to doubt our salvation. They tempt us to be afraid of damnation. They tempt us through enticement to all kinds of sins and destructive patterns and ways of life. And all of these attempts, all of these wind gusts of the devil and his hosts are intended to sink us, to send us down to the bottom of the sea, to plunge us into the murky darkness of hell, to destroy the church. But at the very same time, that great wind that blew against the disciples also points to the whole range of spiritual trials that God sends to us. God, our Father, who loves us and who does all things for our good, that wind blowing against us is also a picture of those trials by which God does not seek to destroy us, but to test our faith, to strengthen our faith, to purify our faith and to teach us spiritual lessons. The disciples did all that they could to row against that wind. You have to picture them in their boat as the sun is setting and it's getting darker and darker and the waves are getting stronger and stronger and they're rowing and rowing and rowing but making no headway. We're told in the other parallel accounts that they rowed about 25 to 30 furlongs which amounts to three to four miles. And since it was about six miles to get across, that means that they only made it about halfway. And that was by the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night referred to 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. They had began their journey the night before when the sun was still in the sky, And they were rowing for hours and hours and hours in the darkness of the middle of the night. And they only made it halfway across. Which means that around three in the morning, they were in the middle of the sea, nowhere close to the land. They were in a very desperate situation. They were at the point of exhaustion, no doubt. And surely they realized at that point how powerless they were how utterly helpless they were at the mercy of the wind and the waves and the danger and peril of drowning in the murky darkness below. 
Have we tried to row against the wind and the waves by our own strength? Have we tried to face trials and temptations by our own power, by our own efforts, by our own works, with that self-determination that I can do this, we can do this, we can make it through this. If we just row harder, if we just try harder, we have the strength, we have it. We just have to keep trying. We can cross the sea. We can overcome these trials and temptations. We can arrive at the shores of eternity. When we have that mentality, God will allow us to go and go and go until we reach the point of exhaustion right in the midst of the sea. And he will do that to show us how powerless we are to save ourselves from our sins, from temptations, from accusations, from the devil, from the whole host of darkness arrayed against us. He will do that to show us our peril if we try to cross the sea by our own strength and by our own works, he will show us the dark depths of the sea are right there. The churning sea of God's wrath, that's what we deserve. In a previous storm at sea, Jesus was with the disciples in the boat. Perhaps you recall that. That happened Earlier, the disciples were on that voyage traveling from Capernaum, and they ended up in the land of the Gadarenes. And a great storm came down on the sea, but Jesus was with them in the boat. Now, he was sleeping in the back of the boat on a pillow. Nevertheless, he was there with them in the boat. And they could see him there. And no doubt that was a kind of comfort to them when the storm came. But this time, he was nowhere to be seen. The disciples were in the boat by themselves rowing by themselves, in the darkness, alone, by themselves. But although they could not see Jesus, Jesus could see them. We are told in Mark 6, verse 48, something amazing. And he saw them toiling in rowing. Remember, Jesus was still on the mountain, and it was the midst of the night But Jesus, from his mountaintop, three or four miles away, could see through the gloom of the night his disciples in their boat, in the midst of the sea, toiling and toiling against the waves. He saw them, and he had seen them the whole time. He had been watching them the whole time. They were not as alone as they may have thought. Jesus sees us as well, even though we don't see him. Sometimes we're going through storms and trials and struggles and troubles, and we don't see Jesus. Where is Jesus? But although we don't see him, he sees us, and he never takes his eyes off of us. But Jesus didn't just see them. Jesus went to them. And he came to the disciples that night on the sea in a most wonderful and memorable way, a way that would make Jesus famous so that the whole world practically knows today that Jesus walked on the water. Jesus came down from the mountain. He went down to the shore, and he stepped his foot onto the sea, 
but he did not sink. The water of the sea under his feet supported the weight of his body as if it was solid ground. And in the darkness of the night with the wind howling and the waves crashing, he calmly, effortlessly, and majestically walked across the surface of the sea as if those waves were not even there. Or as if the wind and the darkness and the waves and the sea were his servants, bowing down to the master and hurrying out of his way to enable him to accomplish his purpose. What an awesome scene, Jesus walking on the sea, coming to his disciples. It manifests to us the absolute sovereignty of God over all of the forces of creation as the creator and the sustainer and the governor of all things. The almighty God has all things under his feet. All things are under his power and control. So why should it be impossible? Or why should it be thought a thing impossible for God to walk on the sea? For God to give to his human body the ability to walk over the surface of the water? God controls and governs and regulates all the forces of nature, including the properties of water, including the force of gravity, including the blowing of the wind. God rules all of these things according to his perfect plan and will. And now it is true that ordinarily God governs the wind and the rain and the sea and gravity according to certain regular, observable patterns so that we cannot walk on the sea. We cannot walk over the water without sinking. But although that is true, the more fundamental truth is that God is the one who rules over all those forces. The laws of nature, so-called, are simply an observation of the way God ordinarily governs the forces of nature. But God can do it differently. God is almighty. He is sovereign. He is in control of everything. So why should it be thought a thing impossible, as it is by so many today? Why should this be thought a legend or a myth and a thing not possible? If you believe in a sovereign God who governs all of creation, that Jesus should walk on the sea. It manifests the sovereignty of God over all the forces of creation. And it reveals to us the very gospel itself. Jesus walking on the sea through the wind and the waves and the billows coming to his disciples to rescue them points us to the gospel itself. It points us to the truth that God has come into this world. God has come into human flesh. He has taken upon himself human nature. And this Jesus walking on the sea is God. None other than God controls the forces of nature. And there is Jesus walking on the sea. All the elements and forces bowing down to the king. It manifests him as God in the flesh. 
And it demonstrates why he came into this world. Why did God come into this world of darkness, this world under the night of sin and evil and Satan? Because he came to save his people. From heaven he saw us in our ship, toiling and rowing across the sea, helpless and powerless and unable to cross the sea to the shores of eternity. And he took pity on us. He took compassion upon us and he came into the world. He took on human flesh. He came to us walking on the sea. He did not avoid the churning and perilous sea of this world, but he plunged into it and he walked on it. He walked on the sea. He came to save us because only God can save us. So God had to become a man so that he could walk on the water and come to our rescue. Because that raging, churning sea can also be viewed as a a picture of the raging sea of God's wrath against our sins. And the peril of the disciples was that They would be plunged into the murky darkness of hell, which is what they deserved and what we deserve. And they were unable to save themselves from it. They were in deadly, eternal peril. Only God could come into our flesh and walk on that sea. Only God could walk over the sea of his own wrath and his own anger against our sins and not sink and not perish and not be destroyed in it, but conquer it. Jesus walking on the sea, coming to the rescue of his disciples, points us to the cross. It was on the cross that God walked on the sea. On the cross, Jesus walked over the waves and the billows of the churning, raging wrath of God against our sins. Calmly, Majestically, you might say effortlessly, he bore all of our sins and the wrath of God that we deserve. And in the face of the contrary winds of the devil who inspired men to crucify him, he walked right through those contrary winds, right through all those waves and billows. He alone was able, and he did it. He came to us. He came for us. And he didn't sink. What a comfort. As we sail through the sea of this world with all of its troubles and trials, we cannot see him. But he sees us. And he came for us. And when Jesus crossed the distance from the shore to the ship, Mark says he made as if he would walk past them. But he had no intentions of walking past them. They saw him there, walking, as it were, about to pass them. And they cried out. They couldn't believe their eyes. They said, it's a spirit. It's a ghost. What is it? And they were terrified. I think we can apply that to ourselves. 
as we're sailing through the sea of this world with the contrary winds beating against us and the waves and the billows, and we see Jesus there on the pages of Scripture. There he is. On the pages of his word, walking on the water. And sometimes, in stormy times of our lives, we tremble. Is Jesus an illusion? Is he a mirage? Is he too good to be true? And then Jesus says to us exactly what he said to them. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. When Jesus said those comforting words, Peter immediately spoke up. Peter said, as the wind howled, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Peter was a man of true faith. Let's start with that. He was a man of true faith. He was one of God's children. He was regenerated and he had faith, true faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, which he confessed. When Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, he was not expressing skepticism as if he truly wondered whether or not that was Jesus. But when he heard the voice of Jesus saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid, he knew that's the Lord. And in his faith, he made that request, Lord, if it be thou, and it is, it is, I know it's, I know it's thee, please bid me to come on the water and walk to thee. He was a man of true and lively faith. And we see here something about faith, that faith produces courage. Faith produces boldness. A lively faith does. So that by faith, we are able to step out of the ship of our comfort zone into the sea with its wind and waves and billows. We're willing to go out into the world as the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it's the realm of Satan, knowing that there's persecution there, knowing that there's temptation there, but we're willing to step out, out of our comfort zone, into that world. By faith, we're brave and we're courageous because our eyes are fixed on Christ. Peter had that kind of faith. He was brave and bold, And he believed in the power of Christ to protect him and hold him up. But Peter also had weakness of faith. Peter also had indwelling pride. Peter was a man who also was prone to speaking impulsively and instinctively, if you will. He would speak without thinking. And we ought to learn, perhaps, from this story 
as a smaller point, that we ought to think before we speak. We ought not to be so impulsive. Peter was learning that. But besides that, we see from the whole life of Peter that he struggled with indwelling pride, putting himself in front, putting himself before the other disciples. He said, Lord, bid me, me, not bid us. Why did he have to be the one to step out of the boat? Why did he have to step forward and walk to Jesus on the water? He wanted to. He struggled with indwelling pride that would put himself forward. And part of that indwelling pride was that he had a weakness of faith. He had faith, a bold and courageous faith in some ways, but at the same time it was mixed together with this this trusting in his instincts, this trusting in his trust, rather than trusting in Christ alone. There's such a thing as trusting in our own trust, believing in our own faith. But faith looks to Christ. And Peter still had this indwelling weakness. Some people think that, no, Peter is not demonstrating pride here. Because if it was pride, then the Lord would not have let him come out of the boat But that demonstrates a misunderstanding. Sometimes we ask things of the Lord in pride, and he grants us our requests. Not because it's necessarily a good request, but to teach us a lesson, to humble us. So Jesus said, Come. Peter immediately stepped out of the boat. Now, Peter was a fisherman. He had sailed his ship to the Sea of Galilee countless times, and he had jumped out of the boat into the water and dived down with the fishing nets and pulled those fishing nets up. He was a very good swimmer, and he knew that when you step onto the water, it's not solid. You sink. You go into it. And yet, this time, when Peter stepped out of the ship, The water under his feet was like solid ice. And he must have been stunned as it supported the whole of his weight, first the one foot, then the other, until his whole body was out of the ship, standing on the sea, and we may believe his eyes fixed on Jesus the whole time. Looking at Jesus there, focused on him, in the strength of faith, He walked on the sea. He took a step and another step, and he started to walk across the sea toward Jesus, keeping his eyes fixed on him. Do you see yourself in Peter? Because we too have done this. We too have walked on the sea, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. We do so every day as believers. We walk in the midst of the sea of this world with all of the wind and the waves and the billows, the temptations, the trials, and yet we walk, we move, we go over that sea looking to Christ. And we don't sink. 
We have done that many, many times. We've walked over the perilous sea and we've not sunk. We've not sunk into the murky darkness of hell because Christ holds us up. Christ has held us up day after day and year after year. And for many of us, decade after decade, he has held us up walking on the sea like Peter by faith in him. But Peter looked away. Peter took his eyes off Jesus for one moment. And we're told that he saw the wind. He saw the raging of the sea. And when he saw the wind that was boisterous, verse 30, he was afraid. For one moment, he took his eyes off Jesus. He saw the raging of the sea, the darkness of the sky. He felt the wind blowing in his face. But of course, he had seen all of that already. He had seen it from the moment he stepped out of the boat. What does it mean that now he saw it? The idea is that now he noticed it as a power and a force that was able to destroy him. And he focused on it in that perspective. He noticed suddenly the dark sea beneath his feet and he realized that he could slip and fall and plunge into that sea and drown and perish. Focusing on the wind and the waves, he began to panic. And when he began to panic, he began to sink. Jesus had complete control over the situation. The reason Peter began to sink was not because Jesus had lost control or because Jesus somehow failed to hold him up. Jesus was the one holding him up that whole time. But Jesus was going to teach Peter a lesson. So when Peter took his eyes off of him, he let him sink a little in the sea. But he would never let Peter drown. Have we taken our eyes off of faith, uh, off of Christ in the storms of our life? Have we found ourselves focusing on the wind, the waves, the sea beneath us, the devil, his temptations, our sins, our struggles, our trials? Have we allowed that to become habitual in our lives? So that habitually we're thinking negative thoughts, habitually we're focusing on the controversies, the troubles, the trials, the temptations, and constantly, constantly, constantly thinking about them, looking at them, then we've probably become fearful. We've probably become doubtful. And we've probably allowed a bit of skepticism into our life. We've probably found ourselves sinking in the water, spiritually unstable, troubled by feelings. Jesus still has his hands right under us and he'll never let us go. But he lets us sink a little sometimes. A little. 
to teach us a lesson. Look at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. And don't look away. Peter, as he was sinking in the water, cried out, Save me, Lord! Save me! There again we see his faith. He had true faith. Save me, Lord! I have made a mistake in looking away from you. Save me! You're the only one who can save me. You're my only hope. And Jesus took two steps forward, stretched out his hand, took hold of Peter, and lifted him up. Not two hands, not struggling with the full weight of Peter's body, trying to pull him up out of the water, but with one hand effortlessly lifted him up and set him back on solid ground. And so does he with us. The child of God sometimes sinks a bit, sometimes sinks in feelings of trouble and despair, sadness and sorrow, of doubt and fear. But when we sink, the child of God always cries out, Lord, save me, save me. He takes hold and lifts us up and says, Now, don't take your eyes off of me again. O thou of little faith, he said to Peter, wherefore didst thou doubt? He wasn't criticizing Peter there. He wasn't beating him back down. He wasn't blasting him for his weakness. But tenderly and gently, as a loving Savior, he spoke to his disciple. O thou of little faith, why did you doubt? You had no reason to doubt. You were walking on the water. You had your eyes fixed on me. Why did you doubt? And so does he say to us as well. As we examine ourselves, let us put before ourselves the question, am I walking on the sea with my eyes fixed on Jesus? Am I walking through life right now with my eyes fixed on Christ? And Christ alone, as the one who only is able to hold me up. Do not answer that question impulsively, like Peter. Carefully consider. Let us carefully examine ourselves. Let us ask the Lord to search our hearts, to humble us, Make known to us who are, like Peter, men and women of little faith sometimes. And let us consider whether we believe the faithful promise of God that all our sins are forgiven us for the sake of Jesus Christ. As soon as Jesus and Peter walked the distance back to the ship and stepped into the ship, the wind ceased. That, too, was part of his wondrous, mighty work that day. The wind ceased. And that proves that this walking on the water was no trick of the eye. Jesus is the sovereign of the sea, 
the sovereign of the wind, the sovereign of the waves. He is truly sovereign over all the forces of nature. He is sovereign over the forces of sin and the devil and darkness and hell. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. The wind ceased. And the disciples worshipped. They said, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Verse 33. According to Mark 6, verse 51, we read, And they were sore amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the loaves, for their heart was hardened. They were amazed beyond measure. Why? Mark says, because their hearts were hardened. They had just seen Jesus Feed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fishes. And yet their hearts were hardened, which doesn't mean that they were unbelievers, but it means that they still had imperfect and immature faith. They were still hoping for an earthly kingdom, just like the others. And Jesus had to demonstrate to them, I didn't come into this world to do such puny things as that. kingdom in Jerusalem, like the Roman Empire, with wealth and splendor and armies? No, I came to still the storms, all the calamities and catastrophes brought in this world by sin. I came to bring a new world, a new heavens and a new earth where there will be an everlasting paradise. I came to bring eternal salvation for you. I came to rescue you from the peril of everlasting damnation. I came to still the storms, the wind, and the waves. And so they were sore, amazed, beyond measure. And they worshipped him. They saw him now for who he truly was. This is God. In human flesh, standing before us. They could do nothing but fall down on their knees and worship him. They gave glory to God for their salvation. So another question of self-examination is whether we purpose to show true thankfulness to God in all of our life. As those who have been rescued from the peril of our sin and death and hell and woe appalling through the cross of Jesus Christ, are we determined from this point on in our lives to live a thankful life, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in all of our life, For this great salvation. At that point, we are told that the ship was immediately at the shore. That's in the parallel account in John. It was immediately at the shore. Remember, they were still in the middle of the sea. They had three or four miles to go yet. But Jesus sped the ship through the waters without a row sinking into the water. And suddenly they were there in the twinkling of an eye. And we leave God's house today with that hope. 
the Christ who has already stilled the storm will take us into glory soon. And it will be in the twinkling of an eye that he will deliver us out of the sea to the shores of eternity. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the gospel of Christ. We thank thee for his mercy and love to come into this world of darkness and night, of stormy winds and raging waters, to rescue us in love for our souls. We thank thee for the hope, knowing that we cannot cross the sea of our own strength, that he will bring us there in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, and bring us into 